0: Haggis, A Lord Called Duck, The Lord Crew Arms, and The Return of Peter the Poltergeist. Welcome to episode 22 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Bog at Wood. <laughs> Welcome to episode 22. First of all, I'd just like to say that if during the episode you hear some nice atmospheric stormy noises, it'll actually be from storm jostling raging outside. We're getting gusts of over 60 miles per hour, or 97 kilometers per hour, depending on your preference, here in the northeast of England at the moment, which isn't proving much fun at all, so apologies for any sound pollution. Secondly the podcast has a new Patreon subscriber, I'd like to say a massive thank you to Andy from Walking with the Ghosts of Durham for joining up andy hopefully the ebooks and journals on there will be of interest if anyone does wish to support the podcast via patreon please visit patreon.com/within the wood. the episode's first story details burns night burns night falls on the 25th of january and has become a worldwide phenomenon originally celebrated in scotland and areas in the north of england the tradition has travelled with the Scottish across the globe, where it is also known as either Robert Burns Day, Rabby Burns Day, or Robbie Burns Day, depending on the locale. So what actually is Burns Night? Burns Night is a celebration of the birthday of Robert Burns, or Rabby Burns to his friends, a famous Scottish poet who was born on the 25th of January 1759 and died on the 21st of July 1796. The first celebration to the port was held by his friends on the 21st of July 1801 to mark the fifth anniversary of his death, and the first Burns Club was founded the same year. Annual Burns suppers have been held on or around the 25th of January since. In 1822 Sir Walter Scott hosted an event for King George IV's visit to Scotland. Scott had requested everyone wear tartan, bagpipers were present, and haggis was served as the main course. This event, it is thought, is what tied the haggis into being seen as Scotland's national dish. So why is Burns held in such esteem? Many think that Burns was one of the greatest poets to have ever lived, with his poetry influencing millions across the globe, and his works also championing Scottish heritage, including awareness of Scots as a language. A typical Burns supper includes a haggis served with neeps and tatties, the latter being turnip and mashed potatoes, often accompanied by whisky. In more formal events there's often a recitation of Burns address to a haggis, a poem by Burns first published in the Caledonian Mercury in 1786. The haggis is also brought to the table traditionally accompanied by bagpipe music, simply called piping in the haggis. So of course as well as the century-old traditions of Burns night, the haggis itself, the main course of the Burns supper, has become subject to folklore. An example of a wild haggis, or Haggis scoticus in the Latin, is on display in the Kelvin Grove Gallery in Glasgow, and is depicted as a peculiar cross between a long-haired Peruvian guinea pig and a muskrat with a large rounded body. Folk tradition has it that Haggis have the most peculiar trait of one leg being bigger than the other, that the form of which this takes depends on which subspecies of Haggis the animal belongs to, with one having longer left legs and the other longer right legs. Some discussion does exist as to whether the longer legs also are attributed to female or male haggai. This strange genetic anomaly makes the annual haggis hunt in the Scottish Highlands relatively easy, as due to the length difference, the animals have a habit of wandering in circles, though trapping a haggis can be an awkward and painful affair if you get kicked by one. Traditionally, haggis hunting season starts on St Andrew's Day, the 30th of November, and ends on Burns night. Legally, a haggis must be over six inches in length when caught, otherwise it must be returned to the wild. Due to overhunting in the 19th century, haggis are endangered and become distrustful of humans, with their strong sense of smell often detecting a hunter well in advance. Some hunters do suggest that you're more likely to bag a haggis at dusk, with your natural scent masked by whiskey. Taking with you a pipe to play a haggis mating call will also help. Now according to the Haggis Protection Society, wild haggis can be dangerous during the summer months when they are protecting their young, known as Haglets. In 2020 the Edinburgh Pest Control Services went viral online with their August alert for visitors due to the breeding season, with specific alerts for the coastal Haggai which would attack with a nasty peck, or the Galloway Belted Haggai which could run very fast. They warned that there was also false news about that Avon skin so soft repels the creature. The Suffolk Gazette also reported in 2021 that five animals had escaped from a show in Suffolk and were ravaging crops. Now in 2003 Halls of Broxburn polled 1000 American tourists on the origins of Haggai and 33% thought that Haggis was a real creature with 23% claiming that they'd visited in the hope of catching a wild one. In 2019, a survey of 1,000 UK residents was also carried out by the Scottish Game Fair, the results showing that 8% of 35 to 44 year olds and 3% of over 55's believed that the haggis to be a real creature. However, the sad truth is in fact that the haggis is, nor ever was, a real creature. Instead, it is a meal designed to prevent any wastage on an animal. Traditionally formed by a sheep's heart, liver and lungs being minced with onion, oatmeal, suet, salt and spices and held in a sheep's stomach to be boiled, usually for around an hour before serving. Some suggest a Viking origin to the dish, others that it was first designed as a nourishing food that could be carried by Old Highland cattle drovers and others that it was simply the food of the poor that left nothing to waste. The episode's second story looks at the legend of John Duck. Little seems to be known about the origins of John Duck, other than that he was born in 1634 and could have been from Yorkshire. Legend has it that he came to Durham City in 1655 and set to work as a butcher's apprentice under master butcher John Heslop. Something wasn't right however, it's not known if he did something or annoyed someone, but in 1656 the company of butchers told Heslop to cease his apprenticeship and if he continued, he'd be fined nearly 40 shillings, a small fortune. Despondent after hearing the threat and awaiting his master's decision, John Duck decided to go for a walk down by the river to clear his thoughts. There, as he kicked stones into the water, a raven flew overhead, then dove down and dropped a shining coin at his feet. Some folklorists say that the coin was a gold Jacobean crown, others that it was a bit of silver but all agree that Duck stooped, picked up the coin and decided to put the raven's gift to good use. The money allowed him to buy a cow, then Heslop decided to ignore the Butcher's Guild's warnings and continued to train his young protégé, and with Heslop's help, Duck was able to buy further cattle and thus began his rise to fortune. In time, Duck married Heslop's daughter, or in some stories his sister. His cattle and butcher business thrived, and within a few years he was able to build a mansion for himself and his wife on Silver Street. As well as his butcher's business, he also invested wisely and successfully in houses, land and collieries, and in time became the wealthiest burgess in Durham. He also built a hospital at Lumley, near Chesler Street. In 1680 he became Mayor of Durham, and in that same year the Butchers Guild admitted him into the company, though they did charge him the 18 shillings admission fee. In 1687 he was granted the title of baronet by the Jacobean government and became Sir John Duck. Sir John died at the age of 59 on the 26th of August 1691 and was buried in St Margaret's Church in Crossgate, Durham City. Sadly though, while the raven had brought him wealth and good fortune, it had not brought him children and with his death his title vanished along with his wealth. The episode's third story looks at the Lord Crewe Arms Hotel at Blanchland in Northumberland. The Lord Crewe Arms, in the picturesque Derwent Valley village of Blanchland, is one of the most well documented of all haunted buildings in the Northeast. Its rich history can still be sensed in the atmosphere in the building. The earliest part of the Lord Crewe Arms is thought to be 12th century. It was part of the Abbey of Blanchland founded by the White Canons, and the hotel is the former Abbot's Lodge, Kitchens and Guest House. With the dissolution of the Abbey in 1536, the Northumbrian Radcliffe family bought the estates and buildings, passing them on to the Forsters of Bamburgh in 1623. At this point, the Abbey began to decay, and the other buildings were converted into houses for the village. The building which is now the Lord Crewe Arms became a manor house, complete with priest hole and the huge fireplace. In 1701 tragedy struck the Forsters, the last direct male heir of the family was murdered in Newcastle and the Blanchland estate passed to his sister Dorothy and his nephew Thomas. Two years earlier Dorothy had married Lord Crewe, Bishop of Durham, who in 1704 bought both the Barnborough and Blanchland estates from Dorothy and Thomas. Thomas was appointed Jacobite commander during the 1715 uprising and surrendered at Preston. He was taken to London and imprisoned in Newgate jail, only to escape three days before he was due to stand trial. In the current building, only the crypt bar and the rooms above date from the 12th century. The rest were built and developed in the 17th century by Lord Crewe. The ghost of Dorothy, daring sister of Thomas Forster, is said to return to her old rooms at night. Legend has it that Thomas and his sister returned from Newgate jail and Thomas hid in the priest hole in the manor's chimney until he escaped the country. He died in France without ever returning home again. His sister haunts the apartments where she used to live, awaiting the return of her brother from exile. Many visitors who have stayed in her old rooms, now the Bamber room, have reported her pale and sad ghost imploring them to take a message to her brother, still in France, to say that he could return home again and that all is well. Others have reported a white-robed monk kneeling in prayer in one of the rooms that belonged to the old abbot's lodging area. Strange footsteps and lights have been seen in parts of the building known to be empty. Another incident was reported by a tourist having a quiet drink in the small bar off the Crypt bar who reported feeling the presence of a woman behind her, walking from the fireplace towards the drinkers. One of the ideas I've had for the podcast was that in some episodes I'll read out sections from books and writings on the paranormal that most of you probably won't have heard of, but may find to be of interest. In each case I'll read from a book that is free to download on the internet, from sites such as archive.org. Let me know what you think of this idea, I'll continue with it unless it's not of interest. Today's reading comes from the 1850 publication by Augustine Calme, entitled The Phantom World or the philosophy of spirits and apparitions. There are two different ways of effacing the opinion concerning these pretended ghosts, and showing the impossibility of the effects which are made to be produced by corpses entirely deprived of sensation. The first is to explain by physical causes all the prodigies of vampirism. The second is to deny totally the truth of these stories, and the latter means, without doubt, is the surest and the wisest. But as there are persons to whom the authority of a certificate given by people in a certain place appears a plain demonstration of the reality of the most absurd story, before I show how little they ought to rely on the formalities of the law in matters which relate solely to philosophy, I will for a moment suppose that several persons do really die of the disease, which they term vampirism. I laid down at first this principle, that it may be that there are corpses which, although interred some days, shed fluid blood through the pores of their body. I add, moreover, that it is very easy for certain people to fancy themselves sucked by vampires, and that the fear caused by that fancy should make a revolution in their frame sufficiently violent to deprive them of life. Being occupied all day with the terror inspired by these pretended ghosts or revenants, is the very extraordinary that during their sleep the idea of these phantoms should present itself to their imagination, and cause them such violent terror that some of them die of it instantaneously, and others a short time afterwards? How many instances have we not seen of people who expired with fright in a moment, and has not joy itself sometimes produced an equally fatal effect? I have seen in the Leipzig Journals an account of a little work entitled Philosophical and Christian Thoughts upon Vampires by John Christopher Herrenberg. The author names a large number of writers who have already discussed this matter. He speaks of a spectre which appeared to him at noonday. He maintains that the vampires do not cause the death of the living, that all that is said about them ought to be attributed only to the troubled fancy of the invalids. He proves by Diver's experiments that the imagination is capable of causing very great derangements in the body and its humours. He shows that in Slavonia, they impaled murderers and drove a stake through the heart of the culprit. That they used the same chastisement for vampires, supposing them to be the authors of the death of those blood they were asked to suck. He gives them some examples of this punishment exercised upon them. The one in the year 1337, and the other in 1347. He speaks of the opinion of those who believe that the dead eat in their tombs, a sentiment of which he endeavours to prove the antiquity of the authority of Tertullian at the beginning of his book on the resurrection and that by that of St. Augustine on the City of God in the sermon 15 on the saints. Such are nearly the contents of the work of Herrenberg on vampires. The passage of Tertullian, which he cites, proves very well that the pagans offered food to their dead, even to those whose bodies had been burned, believing that the spirits regaled themselves with it. But St Augustine, in several places, speaks of the custom of the Christians, above all those of Africa, of carrying to the tombs meats and wine, which they placed upon them as a repast for devotion, and to which the poor were invited, in whose favour these offerings were principally instituted. This practice is founded on the passage of the Book of Tobit. Place your bread and wine on the sepulchre of the just, and be careful not to eat or drink of it with sinners. St Monica, the mother of St Augustine, having desired to do at Milan what she had been accustomed to do in Africa, St Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, testified that he did not approve of this practice, which was unknown in his church. The holy woman restrained herself to carrying thither a basket full of fruits and wine, of which she partook very soberly with the women who accompanied her, leaving the rest for the poor. St Augustine remarks, in the same passage, that some intemperate Christians abuse these offerings by drinking wine to excess. Now, looking at this book, it appears that I'm looking at the second volume, uh, and contents appear to be... Resurrection of a dead person, work of God only. Revival of persons who were not really dead. Uh, resurrection of a man who had been buried three years, resuscitated by a saint. Can a man really dead appear in his own body? Revival or apparition of a girl who had been dead some months. A woman taken alive from her tomb. Revenants or vampires of Moravia. Dead men of Hungary who suck the blood of the living. Narrative of a Vampire from the Jewish Letters and quite a few other things. So, the book is available as a free download from the website archive.org. Just type in the Phantom World or the Philosophy of Spirits apparitions in the archive.org search box, and all the options should be available to you. As I say, if this is of interest, let me know and I shall dig out more for you to find. If not, again, let me know and I'll stop. This episode's from the Archive story is essentially a follow-on to our episode 2 from the Archives, which looked at Peter the Poltergeist, said to be haunting a pub in Blythe. So on Wednesday, 22nd of August, 1962, the Newcastle Journal continued the story, with an article entitled, Now Peter Poltergeist Plays the Piano. Peter, the pub-crawling poltergeist, has cropped up again in Blythe, this time in the Fox and Hounds Inn near the shipyard. But the ghost who terrified the regulars in two of the town's Main Street public houses on Monday with his eerie tantrums has struck a less violent chord. He has been heard playing a ghostly tune on a piano in the back room of the Fox and Hounds. It's licensed for spirits. Last night a weird, incomprehensible doodling was heard coming from the music room. Mrs. Charles Hughes, wife of the licensee, told me, We were washing up the glasses when we heard the piano being played in the next room. I ran to the door thinking that there was still somebody in the room, but when I looked there wasn't a soul in the place. The amazing thing about it was the fact that the lid on the keyboard was still closed. The stranger-than-fiction antics of the impish spirit first came to light when he threw a table lamp from the shelves of the Railway Inn bar in Regent Street. There were no vibrations, no slamming doors or windows which would dislodge the lamp from its resting place on the shelf. Twenty minutes later, Peter, as he has affectionately been christened, floated 200 yards along to the Croft Arms in Turner Street and rattled a few bottles and liquor glasses on the display shelves. Last night, Peter was the talk of Blythe as people flocked to the bars in a bid to see for themselves the strange, unaccountable happenings which have added a touch of the supernatural to the sometimes sombre nightlife of the town. One barman in Turner Street said, Business has never been so good now that Peter's knocking about. Thanks for listening to episode 22. As per usual, more details on these stories can be found in the episode page on the Within the Wood website. If you'd like to know any more details on the project as a whole, please check out the website and let me know what you think on social media. Until next time, have a good week, stay safe, and remember to return your wild haggis to the wild if it's under 6 inches long.